With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey folks, this is a fundraising pitch. Uh, You might have noticed that the show's been on hiatus for about the last six months. Okay, why? Well, I've been producing the Korea File ad-free for the last three years, that's 68 episodes, and it takes a lot of time and effort to track down interviews, research, edit, and produce the show. Of course, I gotta work to pay the rent, which doesn't leave a lot of time to focus on the podcast, so I'm wondering, is it possible to turn this into a part-time job? Maybe, but I need your help. Go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and throw me a few dollars a month. For the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, for the cost of a sandwich at Isaac Toast, you can help turn this podcast into a sustainable project. And patrons get perks. For an ongoing donation of just $4 a month, you'll have access to extra content that you won't find anywhere else online, including bonus interviews and special subscriber-only episodes. If you can afford to contribute a little more every month, $10 donation gets you exclusive VIP access to information about upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions for future episodes, a kind of executive producer position. But hey, every dollar helps a lot, and listeners like you can help to sustain this podcast. So if you can contribute, again, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and donate a few bucks. Thanks. All right. Here's the episode. Broadcasting from Ann Arbor, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean Peninsula and the world. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode... Joshua Van Lu is a historian of 20th century East Asian politics and international relations and an authority on the histories of Joseon Korea and late imperial China. In this conversation, Van Lu discusses the diplomatic intrigue of the Qing-Korea relationship and explains how the pageantry of tributary practice successfully manipulated Western preconceptions of an unknowable orient. This episode was produced in collaboration with the University of Michigan's NAM Center for Korean Studies. So Joshua, what is tributary practice? Well, tributary practice is a term that I use in contradistinction to um, tributary system. So uh, if we think about uh, interstate relations in East Asia um, prior to the 20th century, um, many states uh, engaged primarily with, with either the Qing Empire or the Ming Empire through what we call a tributary relationship in which, um, say, a country like Joseon um, acknowledged uh, the superiority of the Qing state, for example, and uh, did, through, did so through a series of, of protocols that involved sending missions uh, to uh, Beijing to submit tribute 
um, and to submit you know, various, say, for example, uh, letters of congratulations, say, for imperial birthdays or presenting gifts to members of the imperial family and things of that nature. Um, the Qing government might uh, do things such as uh, um, send the calendar each year because uh, the Joseon state actually used the Qing imperial calendar. Um, also to provide investiture to uh, the Qing, oh, sorry, to the uh, Joseon royal family, so to the princes and the kings and whatnot. Investiture um, means? <clears throat> to provide actually a title so that the king of Korea uh, received his title from the Qing throne or from the Ming throne. Um, so they would get a patent of investiture. Um, he would get a seal that would say, you know, I'm the king, right? Um, and also, which is you know, something that's relevant for the work that I'll be talking about today, is that uh, when a member of the royal fi family died, there would be a special mission sent uh, to offer condolences. So this was essentially a form of interstate relations or diplomatic relations. Mm -hmm. Today, it's completely different. I mean, nobody is paying tribute to a more powerful nation. Or right. are they? Well, um, I mean, theoretically, what's going on in the, in the tributary relationship is you have a fundamentally hierarchical relationship, right? And what, uh, say, the Qing throne would have gotten from this is essentially um, uh, a friendly neighbor. Um, and what the Joseon throne got from this was protection. So you know, as long as Joseon acknowledged the superiority of the Qing state, and the Qing was uh, you know, responsible essentially for, for Joseon's security. Um, now, at least you know, putatively, we live in what we would call a Westphalian system, in which you have a system of equally uh, sovereign states. Um, now, whether or not that's really true, right, is another question. And we can actually ask the same question about a tributary system too. Was it really the case that you always had, say, a single Chinese hegemon that was utterly dominant over kind of a supine, you know, set of neighbors around East Asia or Southeast Asia? And you know, just, we can ask the same question about a Westphalian system. I mean, yeah, we we say right that we have an international system that's characterized by uh, equal sovereignty, but if you look at the way in which states interact now, you know, you might actually ask the question about well, maybe. Do we look at, say, like uh, China and client states, United States and client states? And Which includes South Korea. So I'm yeah, wondering, what, like, the, yeah, the client-state relationship, probably South Korea doesn't like to think of itself that way, but in terms of uh, appreciating the military support. But this is not tributary. It's not, although there have been some, actually, South Korean writers who have um, characterized the relationship uh, with the United States as, as uh, akin to a tributary relationship. So uh, that, that, that idea is out there. It's in circulation. So Korea's tributary relationship with the Qing dynasty? That's right. <laughs> right uh, existed right up until the collapse of the dynasty in 1912. So this relationship lasted hundreds of years, right? Well, actually, it, uh, it was over in 1895. Okay. So um, the relationship started um, in 1637, and at least with Qing, um, and ended in 1895, although there was an attempt in 1899 uh, where the Qing tried to reinstate the relationship, but that, that never happened. So, yeah, from 1637 to 1895. Tell us more about this relationship, this Qing-Chosun relationship. Well, um, in the 1630s, actually, the, uh, the Qing uh, Empire imposed it upon Korea. So you know, if we look at the period of you know, the early 1600s, even, like, say, through the 1590s up through the 1630s, 1640s, um, we have a, a crumbling Ming Empire and a rising um, you know, Manchu Empire. The, the term Qing comes a little bit later. And... Um, there's actually so there have been some, been some interesting work um, among Korean historians dealing with uh, the ways in which the Joseon state was trying to figure out do we remain loyal to the Ming or should we throw our lot in with the, the rising Qing. Um, the Kwang uh, Hegun, some people call him now King Kwang He, um, was uh, you know, a Joseon ruler in the early 1600s who decided really that the future lay with the Qing. 
um, but he had to constantly fight his own government actually to try to establish friendly relations with the uh, the Qing at the expense of the Ming. Um, but finally, actually, you know, the Ming collapsed, um, and also uh, you know, King Guanghe was dethroned. Um, you know, in no small part because of his uh, unwillingness to maintain the relationship with the Ming. And so through the uh, 1630s, 1640s, 50s, and 60s, um, the relationship at that point was really a coercive one. And actually, uh, there were a, a succession of uh, Joseon kings that were kind of nursing the fantasy of one day avenging, you know, uh, this coerced uh, relationship. And you know, in 1626 and 1636, the Qing actually um, invaded Joseon. Uh, in both occasions, really, to try to enforce uh, Joseon's submission. But uh, later on, though, I think especially when we get into the 1700s and the early 1800s, uh, the relationship is quite stable and, uh, and normalized. Fast forwarding then to the late 19th century, one of the big moments in the twilight of this relationship was the Qing condolence mission sent to Korea in the wake of the death of Queen Dowager Cho in 1890. Who was Queen Dowager Cho, and why was her death so momentous? Well, Queen Dowager Zhou, uh, she had been the queen to uh, King uh, Ikjong. Now, if you look at the list of Joseon kings, you're not going to find a King Ikjong, and that's because actually he died before he came to the throne. Um, but he, you know, she was uh, you know mother and grandmother to the next uh, two kings, to Hanchong and Chachong. Um, and when uh, King Chachong died in 1863, there was no heir right away. And what happens in a situation like that is that the Queen Dowager um, becomes regent. And uh, she was quite a, a forceful woman politically. And the story goes, actually, that upon the death of the king, that she uh, snatched up the, um, the royal seals and then hid them in her skirts and ran off with them to make sure that she had the authority. Um, but in 1864, with the establishment of the Taewonglin's regency, at first they had a co, kind of a co-regency, but he was able to push her out. Um, but uh, even so, through the 1860s all the way till her death, and arguably even before, she was politically very uh, influential, and in particular, she was said to control the appointment of governors to Huanghe province, and that apparently she also um, kind of had her, had a straw, shall we say, in the tax revenues of Huanghe province that she used for her own use. Um, one of the problems, actually, in, in doing research on female political figures in the Joseon court is that uh, the, the, the source materials that survive are largely silent. Yeah, so she is almost invisible in any kind of um, official documentation. So um, the only thing way that I know about you know, what I'm telling you right now is through people's diary, diaries and sort of the yasa, the unofficial histories. So um, I, I can't give you a real careful accounting of exactly what her power was like, but I can tell you certainly her reputation. But uh, King Kojong in particular was closely allied with her, especially since you know, uh, when the Taewongun was deposed, you know, she was a, a natural ally for when King Kojong um, resumed personal or assumed personal rule. And uh, domestically speaking, when she died, uh, King Kojong actually was quite concerned that there would be an assassination, there would be an attempt on his life, and that perhaps the Taewongun would see her death as an opportunity to try to reinstate his power. So, but internationally, her death itself is not the issue. The issue was the condolence mission and the ways in which um, the Joseon state and uh, Qing representatives attempted to harness both the state funeral and this condolence mission to uh, engage in this kind of political theater that I've, that I've written about. Right, the condolence mission and the diplomatic events surrounding it became a kind of battleground mm -hmm. in which the governments of Chosun Korea, the Qing Empire of China, and the United States were vying with one another to define the nature of the sovereignty of Chosun and Qing imperial authority through differing historical interpretations of the relationship. Mm -hmm. So unpack that for us a little bit. Well, actually, there was um, a change in um, Qing policy towards uh, Chosun 
in the early 1880s, and potentially even then we can trace it back maybe to the late 1870s, in which uh, Li Hongzhang in particular and his staff, um, Li Hongzhang, I would say, uh, he was a commissioner for northern ports and based in Tianjin at this time, and he was uh, placed in, in, in control of Qing uh, Chosun policy, and he felt that um, the tributary relationship was no longer going to really um, suffice in a rapidly changing geopolitical situation. You, know, you think about the, the coming of Western powers and whatnot, that this was no longer going to defend Joseon or maintain uh, Qing interests in Joseon. So he began to um, you know, suggest, actually through various channels to the Joseon government, that it was time to revamp this relationship and uh, to uh, kind of modernize it, I suppose, in a way. Although I don't, I don't really like to use the word modernize, but to, to change the, the relationship uh, such that um, both Qing and Joseon could meet sort of uh, more contemporary security needs. And um, so part of this was going to be actually to get rid of the tributary relationship and come up with a, what I kind of think of as like a, a hierarchical yet more cooperative partnership sort of for mutual security. And so um, actually Li Hongzhang, through um, some of his surrogates, proposed this plan to King Kojong. We'll be talking about this some in the, in the paper t uh, today. And Kojong was uh, very enthusiastic about it. And after uh, very violently uh, suppressing some domestic uh, resistance to this plan, he uh, sent a, an envoy to Beijing and to Tianjin to speak with the Qing government. But by the time, this took about a year from the time he received the proposals to the time he uh, proposed changes on his own, uh, there had been something of a change of heart within the Qing government and they refused him. And in particular, it was the Qing Board of Rights that said, no, we can't um, just do away with the tributary protocols, and here's why. We have to make sure that the international diplomatic community understands that we have a special relationship with Chosong that nobody else has. And the only way that we can really do that is by preserving these tributary protocols and making sure that these protocols are visible to the Western diplomatic community. Did this fear come from a point of weakness that the Qing dynasty was feeling at the time? Yes, actually, I mean, well, actually, for a long time in the second half of the 19th century, and even earlier, um, you know, strategic thinkers in, in Qing and Joseon and even the Tokugawa government in Japan were all very concerned about Russia and Russian expansion. And actually, in 1860, I guess, was the Russians annexed uh, what are now the Russian maritime provinces you know, from the Qing Empire. So, you know, the fear was really quite real and well-founded. So the confrontations revolved around as you're saying, a keen awareness uh, and manipulation mm -hmm. of the Western preconceptions of the unknowable, the mysterious, right. uh, the strange Orient. And it resulted in a piece of international political theater. Mm. So what did this look like to Western eyes? Well, you know, the, the theater itself is, uh, you know, both uh, uh, Qing participation in the state funeral, which actually did not go well for Qing. Uh, actually, the, the, the Joseon government was pretty good in, in managing to thwart uh, Qing manipulation of the state funeral. But when it came time, though, for the Qing uh, envoys to arrive, then in that case, uh, the, the Joseon government was unable to stop that. And the reason that I call this an international political theater is because at that time, by 1890, there was already a significant um, international community in, uh, in Incheon, um, you know, or Timurpo, where, they, uh, where the, the Qing officers landed, and then also in Seoul as well. And there had been a tremendous argument over the course of about five months in which the Joseon uh, government tried to stop any of the public rituals from occurring, and the, uh, the Qing government kept you know, insisting that the, that the rituals would go forward. Uh, and the, the, the key ritual to this was that when the Qing envoys arrived outside of Seoul, that uh, King Kojong would um, go out and uh, publicly you know, perform a prostration before the imperial letter of condolence. And that was the key thing that actually the king was trying to prevent. <coughs> and uh, he was unable to. 
And uh, so what happened afterwards was that there was kind of a flurry of um, Western activity, commentarial activity as to what happened, what did this mean? Um, the U.S. legation, you know, Augustine Hurd, who was the U.S. minister at that time, was actually kind of confused by it because he had actually been quite active in helping the Joseon government to thwart uh, Yuan Shikai's participation in the, uh, the state funeral. So when they saw that Kim Kojong seemed to completely acquiesce, uh, Augustine Hurd couldn't figure that out. And that's actually where the title of my paper comes from, that uh, when Augustine Hurd was writing a report back to President Harrison about what he had seen, he said that the act was oriental between orientals and really as such that it was kind of fundamentally unknowable um, and but what he the argument that he made is that look uh, just being you know, yeah it does look like uh, Chosen has just submitted to Qing but that's not really what this is about it's just a kind of um, an empty ritual that people do um, we really should not interpret it as being too terribly meaningful and uh, we should not worry that we have signed a treaty with a, um, a state that has no sovereignty the title of your talk at the Nam Center's colloquium series is, quote, The Act Was Oriental Between Orientals, and quote, The Persistence of Late Victorian Translations of the Twilight of Ching Chosun Tributary Practice. So the West's interpretation of the event was shaped by Western scholarship and perspective on Chosun-Ching interactions and their notion of tributary relationships. Um, so my question is, do we still see those interpretations playing out today? I would say absolutely yes. And um, I mean, actually, the um, right after the uh, the condolence mission, the Yuan Shikai actually produced an English language pamphlet to be distributed to the, the Western diplomatic community that you know gave a Qing spin on what had happened. And uh, that pamphlet was picked up by um, by uh, Nathaniel Curzon and um, published uh, well, not published, but uh, he he re relied upon it in a very very successful book he wrote in 1894. Uh, called Problems of the Far East. And uh, this book you know, talked about a kind of a willing Joseon submission to Qing authority as part of this kind of ancient East Asian practice. And that book got picked up uh, through a number of publications through the late 19th century in the early 20th century. And actually, even into the 21st century, there have been some monographs that have uh, been quoting this material. So you can find, actually, that this, uh, there's a, this kind of, um, there's a genealogy to this understanding of tribute. But um, in uh, current, um, in the field of international relations, there have recently been uh, several books, uh, most, most notably uh, a book called uh, East Asia Before the, uh, Before the West by David Kahn, that has uh, kind of revived this notion of a, of a unitary tributary system that um, we can use as a kind of um, an objective optic to understand East Asian state relations. And moreover, kind of a formula that we could use, well, formula's a little strong, but it's a, maybe a set of, of, of practices that we could use to think about uh, the ways in which the People's Republic of China actually uh, conducts itself on the world stage now. Um, I say the word, you know, like revive or reintroduce, because among China historians in particular, and I would say far less so Korean historians, I think have not been so good at being critical about the tributary relationship, but China historians, have been, um, I think, quite good in really taking apart the idea that there was even a tributary system at all. And uh, so for historians of East Asia, it's been a real jolt, actually, to see this model come back in, and, and really be, I think, accepted broadly among um, IR scholars. IR. International relations. IR is usually the term used for the, intel for the, uh, the, the academic pursuit of studying international relations. So international relations being the relations itself and IR being the field. You talked before about fear of Russia at mm -hmm. the time, but this was also just prior to the point 
where Japan basically gutted the entire region. China was to change dramatically mm -hmm. in the very near future, and of course Korea was to be occupied for 40 years. How was the relationship between Korea and China at that time mm -hmm. impacted by a threat of a rising Japan? Did they see it coming? I think in the, you know, primarily my work really concentrates on the 1880s. And I think at that point, um, you don't really see as much discussion of Japan as a threat as you might in the 1890s or the early 1900s. Um, was, was Japan aware that it wanted to be a threat at that point? There have been some arguments, actually, that Japan did not really have an imperialist sort of plan of action until the 1890s. Um, it actually goes back, I guess, to Hilary Conroy, who published the work on this in the early, I guess, 1960. Um, you'll find other people who say that they were planning it all along. Uh, and we, we, we can actually kind of look at a certain kind of Japanese expansionism going back to the 1870s. Um, but I think for the most part, if you look at most scholars of, of Japanese imperialism, they really uh, don't date the beginning of that in earnest until 1894-95. Uh, but you know, in, in my experience and the source materials that I've worked with, Japan doesn't come up often, which I've actually found interesting. I mean, even with the whole um, you know, uh, event of, uh, of uh, Queen Dowager Zhou's death, I found very little reference to or concern about what the Japanese diplomatic presence concern, can, thought about this. And even going through uh, Japanese diplomatic communications, there wasn't a lot, I couldn't find very much um, interest in it. It is true, actually, that um, the Japanese wanted to also participate in the state funeral, and they uh, threatened to close their embassy if they were not allowed. Um, but actually, you know, again, in the source materials that I've had access to, I only found that threat. I never found any more about it. So um, certainly, I think uh, Qing policymakers were definitely thinking about uh, rising Japan as a, as a potential threat, um, at least in 1890. Um, but if you think about it, though, Japanese influence in Joseon from about 1885 up through the early 1890s was really at a low ebb. Because, um, you know, there had been Japanese agents who were involved in the 1884 coup and um, you know, part of the reason, actually, that the Qing had such a, an ascendant position in Joseon at that time is that there was a military intervention involved in, um, in chasing out, actually, the, uh, Japanese, uh, or, you know, the Japanese agents and those uh, Koreans who had cooperated with them uh, during the coup of 1884. So for a little while, I think uh, Japan was really lying low during the mid to late 1880s. And I don't think we really see a resurgence of Japanese, at least economic interests, let alone political interests, until we get into the 1890s. Um, I mean, I do think that it's probably it's a legitimate criticism of my work that I don't really spend much time talking about Japan. But on the other hand, I think for the particular time period that I'm talking about, they are not um, as central to, to the, the question. Really. One of your current projects concerns the transnational politics of translation in late 19th century Korea and China. Tell us about this research. Okay. Well, I'm, um, I've long been interested, actually, in a text that uh, in English, I guess, we translate as the history of the fall of Vietnam. Um, it was uh, written partially by a Vietnamese nationalist activist named uh, Phan Bo Zhou. Those writings were compiled and edited and added to by uh, Liang Qichao, who's a, you know, uh, a um, late Qing and early Republic, I guess, uh, um, uh, historian and also political activist as well in China, or in Qing and the, and the Republic. This book uh, came out in 1905. And very, very quickly, it was all over Korea. So 19, between 1906 and 1909, uh, it went through three different uh, Korean vernacular translations, because the original text was in, in literary Chinese. Um, 
And each one of those translations is actually quite different in terms of um, content and style. And the translations of this time are, are in many ways actually kind of more like a selective rephrasing of things. It's not quite translation in the way that we might think of it in terms of trying to find exact equivalencies. And um, actually the book was so popular that the um, Japanese authorities in 1909 banned it. And the content of the book, generally speaking, is a call to um, essentially to nations that are in danger of being colonized, that they should really develop a sense of national pride and national identity as a way of resisting foreign domination. And so this you know, uh, fund from Vietnam is, the story really is about how it is that um, the French were able to take Vietnam and why it is that the Vietnamese were never able to sort of rise up and resist this, this kind of invasion. And so if you think about 1905, 1906, this is right before um, uh, Chosun, or I guess at this point of the Great Han Empire, right, is uh, annexed by, into the Japanese Empire. So it was really timely and enormously popular and very widely read um, in, um, in the, uh, the Han Empire at that time. In, uh, so. I'm interested, actually, though, in looking at this more as more than just a call to, you know, to people to um, kind of uh, cultivate their national identity to resist foreign oppression. What's going on in this text, actually, I think, is a bit deeper, in that it is a, um, a kind of a reassessment and a realignment of historical consciousness, and looking at where Korea falls in world history. So um, the text is kind of interesting in that it not only refers to um, sometimes, you know, uh, older Chinese historical precedent, which would have been quite normal, right, for, for Korean texts. But it also refers to a whole variety of um, colonial expansions in, um, in the 19th century world. And so in a way, it's a, it's a repositioning of Korea in the world. Uh, so you know, pri prior, we might think about a historical consciousness that embodies largely China as immediate neighbors. But uh, as we're moving now into the early 20th century through this particular translation, there is a, um, a kind of a retuning and a re-understanding of what constitutes relevant world history and where Korea fits in that. Um, what I'm also finding interesting, too, is that uh, this text is circulating not only you know, among private citizens, as it were, but it comes up a lot now in um, official documents, the text or the notion of Vietnam as a cautionary tale. So uh, I'm also interested in looking at not only how you know popular notions of um, national identity and resistance, you know, anti-colonial resistance, but also seeing how these ideas are circulating in official circles as well. Joshua Van Lu is assistant professor of history and curriculum director of the Asian Studies program at Lagrange College. Joshua, thanks for speaking at the Korea File. Always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. the Korea file for this week. To see Joshua Van Lu's full lecture, look for The Act Was Oriental Between Orientals, The Persistence of Late Victorian Translations of the Twilight of Ching Chosun Tributary Practice on YouTube. While you're there, subscribe to the Nam Center's YouTube channel at UMICHNCKS. That's U-M-I-C-H-N-C-K-S. You can subscribe to the Korea file podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Blog Talk Radio, and you can find us as a featured contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and Anglo Info Soul. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find The Korea File there too and on Twitter at The Korea File with daily links and current news and commentary about the peninsula. And take a minute to leave a review of this podcast wherever you subscribe. It'll help new listeners discover the show. Until next time, thanks for listening. From Ann Arbor, I'm Andre Goulet.
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.